John Zirabassi has been riding dirt bikes since he was a kid. So when he discovered Adventure Motorcycles some years back, he was elated with this new freedom of being able to ride long distances on the road, yet still tackle the dirt. And with his riding experience, you'd think that he's all set for adventure riding. But that very first day of his very first big ADV ride, well, that showed him that he was lacking an essential skill that almost cost him his life. A skill that, when understood, is good for the mind, but it's of no use at all until after your body knows it. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Sam Manning, It's wind pressure that powers the Moto Breeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters. CyclePump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Uh, hi, my name is John Saravasi. Uh, I'm actually from two places, uh, western suburb of Chicago and north central Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm a retired veterinarian and I now operate a off-road motorcycle tour company called Emmaus Moto Tours. Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Oh, I'm really glad to be here, Jim. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on. Hey, you've been riding dirt bikes, I think, since you were a kid, right? Yeah, yeah. I started, uh, much to the chagrin of my parents, <laughs> I started, uh, my brother, my younger brother and I started riding probably seventh, eighth grade, and then it continued with the only break being when I was in college and veterinary school. And then when the kids were little, once they grew, I got back into it. With your parents not being into it, how'd you manage to get a bike to begin with? Oh, you don't never under, underestimate the ability to whine a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing the effectiveness of whining. Right. Squeaky <laughs> wheel and all of that, right? <laughs> exactly. Yep, that's it. Yeah. So did you so, did you get into racing or anything, or was it just bombing around and uh, ripping up the neighborhood? Um, mostly just like uh, where I grew up in New Jersey, there were um, gravel pits. And uh, one of the main gravel pits in our area was used by the military for doing maneuvers. So when they weren't using it, we'd head over there and, and ride. And uh, 
uh, you know, just kick up some dust. And then yeah, he did a couple races, but, you know, I, I find that, and it was mostly motocross because I didn't have a license and to drive around on the road. So, you know, my, I'd get my, my father every now and again, to trail the bike to the races. And, um, but it just wasn't for me. I, I didn't have that, you know, let it all hang out attitude. You know, I always say like, if I get to the bottom of a jump or a bottom of a double, and when you had to, you know, crank the throttle, I would always back off. So, mm-hmm. um, so that just wasn't me. And, um, so, I, but that was all I had for a long time. And then, you know, then I discovered the woods <laughs> and realized that's really what I wanted all my life. When I rode motorcycles, it was just unreal. I had a cousin, um, actually you may have known Jack O'Connor. He, uh, put together part of the MABDR. He was one of the architects of that, as well as the PA, uh, Wiles ride. And so he invited me to go out ride with him in the woods, uh, one time several years ago. And I was hooked. It was, it was what I had been looking for on a motorcycle and I didn't know it for all my life. It was just amazing. So when you say riding in the woods, is that with a dirt bike or is that with an adventure bike? Yeah. Yeah, start with like a dual, dual, dual I, prim, I started initially with dual sport riding. Um, and uh, then after a while, I discovered adventure bikes and that, that really sealed the deal for me. So I'm assuming when you, when you mentioned Jack O'Connor, that um, that's sort of your introduction to the BDR? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think primarily um, I was still doing a lot of dual sport and Jack put on um, some rides in New Jersey. He also uh, put a ride together in West Virginia and then also actually right near where I live now in Pennsylvania. And so I, I was involved in those types of rides. I did a lot of the AMA dual sport series rides and I did that for a long time. Um, and uh, actually I was out in uh, on a ride with a local motorcycle dealership out in the Mojave Desert. We did a three-day ride based in Las Vegas and uh, I had found a guy who was selling uh, 800 GS and he actually delivered it from California to where we were in, in Las Vegas. And then I had the bike shipped back to Chicago. And, and then once I started riding that, it just, you know, it changed everything. And that my, I had a KTM 350. I still do uh, at the time, but, and that got less and less riding time. Uh, and I was on the BMW a lot more. How did you find out about adventure bikes before you bought this 800 GS? You know, I think, um, we were out, my wife's uh, father lived in California, uh, north of San Francisco in Marin County. And we were up there one year visiting. And I just had the thought of going on a motorcycle ride. And I proposed, hey, you want to go do a ride? And to my surprise, she said yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so I think she regrets that now. Um, but we ended up, we, I, I never, I'm never into street bikes. I mean, you know, a lot of my friends who had grown up with street bikes, you know, they talk about all these different models of, of motorcycles and it just fell on deaf ears to me because I had no, no background in street bikes. So when she said, yes, I looked for, um, you know, places that rented and, this one place in the area had a 1200 GS and that looked pretty cool. So we rented that and I just really enjoyed the heck out of it. And a year or so later, I found myself in Detroit for um, Denver for a veterinary convention. So I rented an 800 GS at that point and took it up uh, into Rocky Mountain National Park. And I just had a blast. And uh, so once I got the bug, I started looking to for uh, 800 to uh, to buy. Mm-hmm. And I found this guy in California and then things just started rolling from there. Obviously you got your but, license to ride on the road somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The, um, yeah. I did the MSF course, uh, did the intermediate one, one day course. And so I 
had a fair amount of background in writing. And it's a great course. I, anybody who doesn't get lessons either on road, if they're going to write on road or off road um, is crazy. Um, yeah. You don't, especially if you're riding on road all your life and you decide you want to give the the dirt to try. Uh, there's so many differences between riding pavement, the dirt that, you know, if you apply the skills you learned as a street rider to dirt, um, you're going to get in a lot of trouble. So um, yeah, I highly, highly recommend. Yeah. And, and you get so much out of a good trainer, same as any course you take. If you have a good trainer, the, the more you can learn before you go in, the better. And then you know the right questions to ask and you, and you can really dig deeper, but um, there's just, it's such a fast track. And it makes it more fun. I mean, if you spend all your time just with a death grip on the bars because you're so afraid of what you're getting into, you can't have a good time. Whereas the more you learn, your comfort level increases and with comfort comes enjoyment and it, it makes a world of difference. So true. Yeah. Yeah. You got this 800 GS, so you must be very excited about this. And then you're planning to do a big ADV ride. Now, did you just get that and, and plan to do the BDR? Is that how it happened? I think I got the bike and then I don't know how I discovered BDR. I, I, I don't know where I came. I must have read an article or something and um, about the Colorado BDR. And I thought, wow, that looks really awesome. And so I had a few friends in the area and I said, what do you think? And I managed to convince three of them to go along. And so I spent a lot of time planning the ride. And, and actually, even now, that's I enjoy riding, but a close second is the planning. I just really, really enjoy planning a trip and, and the, the navigation is, is just, for me, is just so much fun to, to put something together, put it on a, um, look at it on a map, switch it over to a GPX file and then actually ride it is just an awesome uh, experience for me. Um, so the planning um, is a huge part of it. And I spent a lot of time researching the Colorado BDR, looking at a bunch of video, checking the maps and, um, um, it, it really, um, it was really enjoyable. Uh, so when we got to Colorado, I, I pretty much knew what to expect for the most part. Did your friends know what to expect? Like, what, like talk about them and what they're riding and their experience. Uh, so there were th four of us all together. I had the 800 GS. I had a, another friend in the Northern Illinois area that I rode with a fair amount. He was on a KTM 1090. And then I had another friend uh, he was on a KTM 990 and then another guy was on a KTM 350 and they were all fairly busy with work. And I, you know, even before I retired, I was in a position where I, I could schedule time off uh, to do stuff like this. So I was the one who had the time to really put things together and they just sort of followed along. Um, and um, so they just kind of plugged in um, and I had the responsibility of getting the lodging and the, you know, getting the route figured out and all of that. Now this 800 GS that you have for this ride that we're about to talk about, did you ride it much off-road before this? Uh, not a lot. No, I got it in, let's see, 2016, 2015 or 2016. And then actually the first ride we did on it, my wife and I rode from Chicago to, uh, uh, Cape Breton Island, the Cabot Trail in Nova Scotia, mm -hmm. uh, about, and then and then back through New Brunswick, across to St. Lawrence, through Quebec, uh, Quebec City, Montreal, back down through Michigan, and back to Chicago. So nice. about four thousand miles in in three weeks. So wow. yeah, <laughs> yeah, she learned that she has one hour and twelve minutes of saddle time <laughs> before she needs a break. <laughs> so that was pretty much so. It. In the end, did you did your wife come out of it saying that was a lot of fun? I'd love to do that again. 
Um, she, I think the big complaint she had is, um, I, I tend to be somewhat type A. So when I plan initially, and I'm learning this lesson, and you guys talk about it in, on Raw a lot, is when you when you plan a ride, you know, keep the mileage down <laughs> just so you can kind of enjoy it. And I just tried to stuff as much as I could into three weeks. And uh, that was not something she wanted. I think the other thing uh, you guys talk about is knowing what each, what each person wants out of a ride. And um, I forgot to really ask her that question. <laughs> so she just assumes, as we do, yeah, that I mean, she's like the she's same thing want, as you. Yeah, she's going to want what I want, isn't she? I mean, yeah. and if she doesn't, well, it's too bad. It's my ride. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but yeah, that's uh, she's not going to hear this, is she? Uh, no, <laughs> like, I'm sure she won't hear this. Uh, the thing is, though, like, does she want a ride afterwards, though? Because that can turn somebody right off. She, um, she actually got her motorcycle license. Uh, I was away on a, on a ride for a weekend and unbeknownst to me, she took an MSF course and I come back from the ride. She said, I got a surprise for you. And she sits me down in front of her computer and she put a PowerPoint presentation about the course with pictures and everything about the course she took. So she really doesn't want a ride, but I think she just wanted to prove to me that she could. (laughs) And so, uh, and so we rode, you know, two up um, somewhat for the last few years. But um, as I think we'll probably get into later, you know, I, I hit a, a deer last fall and that pretty much sealed the deal for her, at least for this come, this past year. And so she made me a promise at the beginning of the season this year that if I didn't crash, <laughs> she would ride with me again. And mm. I, succe- I succeeded in that. So uh, Ride with you again, like on the back or on her own bike? Oh, no, no, on the back. She has no interest in riding on her own. I'm trying to get her to get a, a spider, a Can-Am spider, and I think she'd be more comfortable on that. But mm-hmm. This big adventure ride. So this is, this is a big deal. You're heading out on your first real big adventure. Did you think about that? Like, I mean, it had to be on your, on your mind as this is oh, the big, yeah. your first yeah. big adventure for this. So did you feel well prepared with the 800 and your skill riding the 800? Uh, yeah. I mean, I had ridden a little bit of dirt. And so, and, and I, on the big bike, you know, but I have had a long background in, in off-road riding before that. So I felt pretty comfortable with my skill level, but on the same token, I really didn't know what to expect. You know, I didn't know, um, I, you know, how much rock riding and how much elevation we were dealing with. And, you know, what about, we were planning on camping and I hadn't really done much of that. So there were a lot of unknowns. And mm-hmm. so you know, I think that led to a fair amount of uncertainty. And I think uncertainty can often lead to errors in judgment. Uh, and errors in judgment can lead to catastrophe, which, mm-hmm. you know, it ended up happening on this ride. Did you get much dirt riding in? Was there much of the adventure that happened before this incident that we're going to talk about? Uh, no, uh, we really only got one day in. Uh, we decided to run, or I decided to run the the, the route north to south, uh, where it's commonly run south to north. Although it's appropriate to run it north to south, but the the most common uh, direction is starting in the southern part of Colorado at Four Corners. So we started up in Bags, Wyoming, uh, and then crossed the border fairly quickly. Uh, made it to Steamboat pretty quick because it was a fairly pedestrian um, section that that it was, which is the last section of the Colorado BDR. So we wind up in steamboat, you know, midday. And like I said, we were camping 
And uh, so we said, well, let's just press on and find a camping spot. Let's get a little further south. And uh, so, and most of that first section was pavement and fairly easy gravel. So there wasn't a whole lot of challenge up to that point. Why did you choose to do it north to south? Um, I think because we flew into Denver and the uh, ride from Denver to Bags was uh, shorter than the ride from Denver to the end of the route in, or the beat, which would normally is the beginning of the route in Four Corners. And I, th- I think the plan was really just that we didn't want to have a really stressful long haul prior to the start of the ride. And it just seemed like a nicer, easier ride from Denver to Bags than it would have been if we went the other direction. You flew in and how'd you get your bikes there? So I, the other guys flew in, I drove and I took uh, three motorcycles and got to Denver and I had a veterinary conference there again in Denver. So um, I had my bike with me and I put the other two in storage uh, at one at a uh, um, Colorado motorcycle adventures uh, who were in Denver at the time or in Boulder area. And the other guy came out, he drove out. So two flew. I drove and uh, the other guy, uh, John, he drove out as well. Now, the um, the trouble that you ended up having had nothing to do with it being an adventure bike. It just had to do with other no, things. No, it had to do with stupidity, really. It's just, <laughs> well, yeah. it's a little hard. Yeah. Let's get to that. So yeah. let's talk about this road that you were riding at the time. What, 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 describe this road. So we got into Steamboat and one of the guys, Dave, uh, was uh, he's really into... Um, photography, videotaping, and he does a really great job editing. We, he published the, our ride uh, on uh, as a YouTube video. And so we stopped and he flew the drone for a while and in at just north, south of uh, Steamboat. And then we saddled back up and headed out. And just south of Steamboat, before you get back into off-road, there's a series of twisty pavement. And like I said, my experience on pavement was really limited at that point, even though we took the ride to Canada. Um, you know, I didn't grow up riding street. And, uh, so, uh, we were, uh, heading into the first, uh, right-hand tight corner. You're the leader, as, as you said, yes. because mainly yes. because you had the time. I mean, that was your, your qualification, I guess, the time and enthusiasm to do it. So you Correct. sort of feel the pressure you, you've got the routes on your GPS and you're riding up front, I assume. Yeah. And, you know, and then, you know, reading GPS was a new skill for me as well. Um, you know, I, I had, I had done a, the Transamerica part of the Transamerica trail with a friend and I was like halfway three quarters of the way through it before I figured out how to read the GPS. So, so this was a new skill. And, um, so I was constantly looking at it to confirm where we were and where we were headed. So my eyes were not always on the road. Are, are you feeling nervous about it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I had guys behind me that were friends, and you know, I didn't want to let them down. Yeah, there's no doubt. No. The the guide certainly, uh, official or unofficial, the guide takes on a lot of responsibility, and yeah. and um, it's hard not to feel that. So there you are, you're riding along, you're heading into what you said was a twisty road. Right. You're constantly checking that GPS because you're 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 feeling a little antsy about this. Let's just go through this very slowly, step by step. So when you're checking your GPS, what what does that entail? Um, you know, you're, you're looking down at the, the screen, the, 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 the map screen, uh, sometimes just switch back and look at the waypoints to see what's coming up, or you'll scroll the screen to, to see what, what the, the route has in store up ahead. Um, and sometimes you get lost in it and just spend a little bit more time 
checking the screen than you really should. I mean, we've all been there even, you know, being in a car traveling and, and getting focused on navigation. Mm. Sometimes you start looking at it and you forget that there's actually a road in front of you. Uh, and it's, it's, it's something you really have to play, pay careful attention to. And then, um, you know, I've got the guys behind me and then one friend of mine, uh, was, he wasn't meaning to be, you know, um, aggressive in his writing or anything, but he was feeling it too. He was having a good time and he was, you know, up close behind me. So I was looking concerned about that. You know, you guys talk about that too, about not riding close uh, because it, it, you know, you don't have the time to react or you make the person in front of you a little nervous. So, Mm -hmm. so that was, you know, when I look back and he was close to me and I thought maybe that's the other thing I have is you, you worry about, well, am I not going fast enough? And are they, am I going too right. slow and they're getting bored or maybe I'm going too fast and the people behind me are, you know, getting nervous about the speed. So that's, that's been something I've had to, to work on and deal with as well. And at the time, uh, you know, I wasn't experienced as a guide and I, and I worried about not giving them the experience in terms of enough of a challenge. So if somebody gets close to me, I assume that means they want to go faster. So I speed up and then they speed up and then I speed up mm-hmm. and, and, it, and it gets to be this, you know, cycle that, you know, often can end in problems. So th- this is all going on. You're, you're checking your GPS. You're looking at it. You may be even touching it and scrolling or zooming. You're thinking about the, you're obviously checking your mirror. You see the rider behind you is getting close. Then you look up, talk about what happens next. Uh, so, um, I look up and I realize that I am going too fast for the corner that's coming up, approaching way more rapidly than I had uh, planned. What does that mean? Like you realize you're going too fast. Like, like explain that. Well, I mean, you have a, I think you, you know, we develop a comfort level on what we can manage in, uh, situations and, you know, part of the variable, I mean, we have the variable of, of surface, you have the, the, tightness of the corner and the speed you're traveling. And at your particular comfort level of riding, your skill level, uh, you have sort of a sense of what you can manage and what you can handle and what you cannot. And as I was com- approaching this corner, uh, I was sure that I was carrying way more speed than I was able to uh, safely navigate the corner. Now, is that because it's a just a corner or, or is it because it's that corner in particular? Like in other words, it, was this just too fast for you to approach a, a turn or was it because you can't see through the turn? Both. I mean, it was a tight corner and you couldn't see uh, what was um, coming through the corner on the other side. And where are you on the lane? Um, I was probably mid to midpoint of the, the lane and then uh, a little bit closer to the center line. And the turn well, is curving which way? To the right. To the right. To the right. Yeah, I had a I just to kind of a, throw in another little thing. I had I rode with a guy, and I'm not sure if he was pulling my leg at the time or not, but I still value this comment that he made. As you know, when you're riding, you should ride, and this is his number. I don't have a way of you know determining it, but his number is you ride at 75 percent of your ability. And, you know, occasionally you'll stretch the envelope, you know, to improve your skill level. Uh, And then as your skill level increases, that 75% naturally raises. But if you're always on the edge all the time, and that's the way I used to ride because I rode motocross. And that's the way you ride motocross, right? You're pushing, pushing, pushing all the time. But you can't ride that way uh, with either a dual sport or, or adventure bike. Because if you're pushing all the time, it's just a matter of time before you, um, you go over the line. Uh, and get in the trouble. 
I remember a, a pilot once telling me that uh, he was he was just talking. This is on the coast of British Columbia, and, but he was saying that he has a, a lot of friends that had perished over the years in, in uh, plane crafts. Not a lot, but he had some. And he said that when they were younger, they used to fly what he called the gray zone. He called that that maximum where you're really pushing your luck. You know, you're out in some really bad yeah. conditions, fog, and this this case would be fog and wind and and uh, and cold weather. And he, and he said that he sort of learned over the years that the more time you spend in that gray zone, he's a very basic thought process, the higher your chance of succumbing to, to a problem, right? And, and that's sort yeah. of what you're describing there with the 75%, exactly. because above that, that gets into what you could call the gray zone, like you're, you're going to your maximum. I remember Chris yeah. Birch saying that on this show before. He says, you know, you don't ride at 100%. You always got to have some reserve. You need something. You always got to right. have something there. And it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, what 75% means is totally subjective, but I mean, I think we all understand the concept in saying that, and it can certainly help with the average rider, any rider, you know, with yeah, their thought yeah. process as they, as they ride the bike. Yeah. I mean, if you're wide-eyed all the time, uh, you're, you know, meaning the adrenaline is pumping all the time. It's exciting. Um, first, it's exciting <laughs> for, yeah, until it's not. Yeah. Right. No, definitely. And, and then wears you out. Uh, I mean, you're, you're um, physically, if you're, um, in that mode all the time, uh, you're mentally and physically going to be worn out faster yeah, that's uh, a, that's than you would if you point. just relax. And then plus you, you just don't ex- enjoy what you're doing. You know, if you're, if you're constantly on edge, you can't enjoy what's around you and, and look at the trees and look at the clouds and look at the leaves falling and, you know, in, in sites that you may pass by, I'm a, I'm, I have tunnel vision to begin with, but when I'm riding fast, you know, I, I don't see what's going on around me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and it, it doesn't mean you can never ride fast, no, but you have to not. pick your spots. And cause if you don't, if you don't push yourself every now and again, then you don't improve. Yeah. That's just the way it is. Um, but if you live on the edge, you're going to die on the edge. You're in a corner here. You've looked up, you realized you're moving too fast for this corner. What do you think? What's the plan? Well, my first, again, being a dirt rider, my first instinct was to grab rear brake. Now, I know that now on the pavement, you know, most of your stopping power and pavement is in the front. Uh, but I was uh, jabbing for the rear brake. And because I was panicked, I, I couldn't find the rear brake pedal. Why couldn't you find the rear brake pedal? Is it because you're just not used to the bike? I, I got nervous. And then also um, it had, I had dropped the bike at some point and the, the rear brake pedal had bent somewhat closer to the cases. Mm. So they weren't as accessible. So rather than me to take the time to fix it when it happened, I just left it thinking, oh, it'll be okay. <laughs> well, right. it wasn't okay when I was in panic mode. And um, so it wasn't where I thought it should be. Now, panic mode probably came after you pushed down with your toe and realized there's no brake pedal. Yeah, correct. Right. Yeah. And so the first stab, when the first stab came up empty, yeah, things, my, my heart started pumping at that point. How fast are you going? Uh, I was probably doing, uh, I don't know, 45, 50, maybe. Right. So you're moving along pretty good. You're covering some ground. Yeah. That, that little reach that you just did with your toe to reach that rear brake pedal and find out it's not there, maybe twice, maybe three times, that's taking you a, a long distance as you're passing along still, getting closer to the corner. Correct. Right. So, and then the, the, other, the other factor... Uh, was um, as I got closer to the corner, I was able to see the traffic coming the other way. And there was a horse trailer coming the other way, not just a trailer, but obviously being pulled by something. And it was being pulled by like a semi cab. And they were on their side of the road. Uh, mm-hmm. But 
when I saw that and I knew I was moving too fast and I couldn't slow down with the rear brake, I got really panicked. And so I grabbed for the front brake. Okay. So what the, what the situation is here, just to complete this picture again. So you're heading now because this corner goes off to the right, this truck and trailer is coming towards you. They're basically right in front of you. If you were to draw a a straight line, which is what things tend to do. The object in motion tends to resist a change in direction or speed. So if you keep going, you're going right into this truck and trailer. And you already feel like you're not going to make this corner. That's exactly right. I I had determined once I couldn't find the rear brake and I saw this coming the other way, I was sure there was no way I was going to make the corner. So I kind of went into salvage mode at that point to see what I could do to minimize the amount of damage that was going to happen. Moto Camp Nerd is a one-stop shop for us riders interested in camping because they specialize in motorcycle camping gear. Not just dabble in it, but they live and breathe motorcycle camping. And this is a real brick-and-mortar store as well that you can ride up to, walk in, and talk to real people. Of course, loads of people order online because they aren't near the store. But the reason people are buying their camping gear from Moto Camp Nerd is because Moto Camp Nerd are riders. And they are experts in motorcycle camping gear. Ben and Mary Williams are the founders, and they say they're happy to help people sort out what might suit their riding style or discuss the options or the things that you should be considering when looking at motorcycle camping gear. Moto Camp Nerd stocks brand names like Nemo, Big Agnes, Sea to Summit, and they also have a ton of information on their website for motorcycle camping. The store, the physical store, is located in Archdale, North Carolina. But you can order from their extensive website at motocampnerd.com. That's motocampnerd.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Motocampnerd.com. I have a new best friend. It's called The Hugger, made by Burley's Possum Socks. I'm telling you, this thing is the ticket for comfort, warmth, and even good looks. Let me explain. Pearlies has invented a new sweater signed for us motorcyclists, but honestly, I don't think they realize what they've got here because I'm an outdoors person, have been my whole life. I think I've probably told you that before. I always dress for the weather and I've been layering my clothing since I was a preteen and, and started backpacking. So I've tried many, many combinations over the years. And I thought what I found was the best, and I did, it was the best at the time, it was the best for many years, the merino wool sweater. I've been wearing them for decades. But not long ago, Duke Lambert, the owner of Pearly's Possum Socks, told me that they had a prototype of a sweater that they wanted me to try. I was seriously intrigued because I've already been blown away by the performance and quality of Pearly's Possum Socks, so I wanted to see what they've got. Well, my first impressions taking this thing out of the package was first, it was incredibly soft, and second, it looked like a really nice sweater. So being soft, I'm assuming that, well, this thing's probably going to be delicate and being good looking, I kind of wondered about the actual performance. It didn't take long for me to find out that Pearly's new hugger sweaters would be something that I would wear almost every day. I mean, except for the really hot summer days. And even then I'd throw my pack for cool evenings or cool days if it was raining or something like that. I mean, this thing is amazing. It's made of 20% New Zealand possum fur. 70% merino wool and 10% silk. 
when I got this thing, it was cold outside. So I put it in rotation with my regular Merino sweater to figure wear one one day and the other the next. Well, I didn't end up wearing my old sweater anymore. I only wore the Pearly's Hugger. I wore it every single day and I wore it for everything. I mean, working in outdoors activities. I mean, everything. I washed it to death and months later, after the abuse of working in it, riding in it, getting it dirty, using it, I mean, every day, I'm not exaggerating, I went to my son-in-law's one day, and when I arrived there, he asked me if I got a new sweater. And it sort of took me by surprise, because this thing has been through hell and back. And it hit me how durable this thing has been. I have used and abused the sweater, and it still looks like a new sweater. Amazing material, incredible performance, and I mean performance because it will keep you warm and snug under your riding jacket, but you can also use it every day. So it's incredible value. Imagine if your motorcycle jacket would be worn as a regular jacket. I mean, that would be great, right? You spend all the money on the jacket and you can wear it every day. Well, the the hugger, the Pearly's hugger is for riding. Yes, absolutely. But it's also for every other activity you would do, including going out for dinner. This thing is absolutely amazing the Pearly's Hugger. You get it at pearlyspossumsocks.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Pearly'spossumsocks.com. Salvage Moose, you gave up. At this point, you, you, you've you committed, did. you've realized, you're, you're, you've realized to yourself, you're not going to make this, you're going to have to do something else. So what are you, you going to do? Bail? Uh, so um, I grabbed front brake and I didn't, you know, we talk about front breakage usage. It's not something you get four fingers on and yank to the handlebar. You use a couple fingers and you and you use graduated pressure. Um, and I didn't I didn't know that. I just grabbed it because I wanted to stop now. And I was in the uh, leaned over at the time a bit, and so the bike washed out. And in my mind, I knew if I'm going to wash out, I want to wash out low side and use the bottom of the bike as sort of a shield to help minimize any injury I might get. So I, that, I, that all went through my brain in that short period of time. And so that's what happened. Very scary situation. So, okay. Yeah. So you pulled that front brake. And now this bike, I believe is equipped with ABS brakes. Is it not? Yes. Yeah. So you yes. had ABS on, but I, but I may have had it off at that time. That's Ooh. a good question. Cause I don't really know the answer to that question, but I may have had it off cause we were coming through dirt and I, um, yeah, I, I don't recall hundred percent. Because it didn't act like ABS at that point, though. It, it locked right. up. Because if you had pulled it on with ABS, first of all, you would have noticed an incredible chatter on, on the front as you yanked yep. on that brake. But you would think that if ABS was on, that probably would have stood you up more upright and, and really transferred the weight to the front. Yeah, could have. Yeah. Yeah. But that didn't happen. <laughs> you went down. Yeah. And now, yeah. as you know, we've talked about this before on the show, when you've got your rubber on the road and you're getting on the brakes, that rubber is traction between your bike and the asphalt and you yes. and all this mass. But as soon as you lay down, it's metal on the road, which is like, you, well, you pick up speed at that point. Yeah, I've got a, a friend of mine and he used to own a um, Harley Davidson dealership in Virginia. And he's had people come in who've had crashes and he, and, and he always likes to say, yeah, they always told me I had to lay it down and he had to laugh. Yeah. That was the old way. People would say it all the time. You know, yeah, I couldn't yeah. stop. So I had to lay it down. Lay it and down. it's just yeah. completely wrong and, and a total Correct. misunderstanding, but it's through some of the, the, the lore that we get. So you, you go down, now you're sliding on the road. What happens? So I'm on the right side sliding with the, the skid plate headed towards the trailer and um, I make contact at the left front corner of the trailer uh, with the skid plate 
and also uh, my left foot peg and side stand combination. Now, are you still on uh, sort of on the bike at this point? I'm on the bike. Yep. Yep. So your right leg has been pulled back, I'm assuming. I believe so. Cause I didn't, it didn't, you know, I didn't get injured. So it, I'm assuming it was out of the way. It, the bike didn't land on it or cause any injury to that leg at all. Mm. So yeah. once, so once I hit the trailer and th- thankfully I hit the corner of the trailer because, you know, either way, if I was a little later in the process, I would have rolled under the trailer wheels. If I was a little earlier, I would have uh, either rolled under the cab wheels or under the trailer itself. So the bike hit the left front corner and uh, that impact bounced me back across my lane to the opposite side of the lane. And there you stopped? And then I stopped. And then the uh, the guy who was behind me, Dave, was, you know, he was, he's the one who was a little bit close, but he, he panicked and he just barely stopped before he hit me and a bunch of traffic stopped, you know, they all thought I was dead. (laughs) So, but I got up just angry more than anything. (laughs) I would just, yeah, me, I was angry at me for, I'd never get mad at anyone else. I always get mad at myself. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just angry that I I let this happen. And, and the, one of the other friends of mine, um, uh, he has said, well, don't you know about counter steering? (laughs) And I remember I heard something about it, but I don't know much about it. So, I mean, if I had had more background on the road and if I had took, you know, additional classes, you know, it would have been a matter of, okay, I can't find the brake, but just push her on the right hand hand, handlebar. And it would have just pushed me, railed me right through the corner without any issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, But instead I panicked and, you know, I didn't have enough muscle memory to do something like that. And, uh, and so the, the outcome was what it was. So I want to come back to this, but, but first let's just hear the rest of the story here because you end up, um, trying to, <laughs> you end yeah. up trying to lie to the law, I guess. At least what oh you yeah. Did. Yeah. So yes. I fought there? the law and the law won. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so we, we get the bike standing back up and, uh, like I said, people had stopped to make sure I was okay. The truck and trailer, they kept going and that sounds bad, but it wasn't bad. I'll explain that in a bit, but. Um, we got the bike stood up and we rolled it. This was on a slight hill. So we rolled it down the hill to a side street and, uh, to assess the damage. And while we were doing that, uh, sheriff's police pulls up and, uh, one of the guys in my group said, well, now don't tell him what happened. Just tell him we're working on the bike. Uh, and I was like, well, I guess you know better than me. So, okay. <laughs> so, so like what I, what I didn't know was that the tractor trailer had, kept going because there was no place to turn around. And, and there was a woman that was driving and she thought for sure she killed me and she called the police and told them what happened. So when he pulled up, he knew, he knew exactly what happened. So me telling him, Oh no, we're just working on the bike. Nothing happened. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> the smell meter was <laughs> went high. And so he, he knew I was lying. Isn't there bits of plastic and stuff all over the place? Uh, no, not really. No, there really wasn't. No, but there was a lot of tire marks. <laughs> so he said, so he points to, he motions to me and he says, well, let's take a walk, you and I. <laughs> so <laughs> so we walked back up to the scene of the accident and there are skid marks, you know, all over from me and everything. And he said, and he told me exactly what happened and he was right on the money. And, uh, so we walked back down and he gave me a talking to and gave me a ticket and, uh, so he, and which, you know, added insult to injury. 
And uh, I was initially supposed to come back to Colorado to face the fine, but I was able to write a letter of apology. I felt like I was back in third grade. (laughs) Uh, And uh, so I got away with a fine and and, uh, a new respect for things. Right. And a bit of a a messed up bike out of the deal. Well, okay. So let's go back to the corner because you said it, but you didn't understand counter steering. Now, this is an interesting thing because counter steering is something that we do on bicycles as kids but we don't think about it. The problem with it is, is that when you're riding a motorcycle, if you don't really fully understand the dynamics of how you turn your bike, you can get by with a lot of riding for many years. I think people get by their entire lives without fully understanding. So, so did you have that feeling like you, you sort of, did you ever find you go into a corner and sometimes you corner better than another corner and you don't know why before this? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I think I remember, like, I think I had, some exposure to the concept of counter steering prior to this, but I just sort of brushed it off as like, well, yeah, that's just kind of some tech technical aspect of something we already know how to do. And, but what I was had in mind was more of just leaning the bike into the corner, not physically putting pressure on the handlebar to get, to improve the turning radius. And, and I think part of it is, you know, sometimes we want to understand all the technical aspects and we try to explain it and, and you, you know, people's eyes glass over. Whereas if all you have to do is just feel it and you don't have to know why it works. You just have to know that it does work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think once you feel what happens when you push on that handlebar and the bike just pivots, uh, it, it makes all the difference and you don't have to really know all the physics and aerodynamics or whatever that causes that to happen. It's just like your conversation with Chris Birch on, um, uh, putting pressure on the peg, you know, peg steering, mm-hmm. you know, how that works. I was like, yeah, I don't know. I just know that when you put pressure on there, you don't slide out from under you while you're going right. around a gravel corner. So, right. yeah. So, so sometimes I think you lose people by trying to get too complicated with the description. Just, you know, this is what, this is what happens and this is the effect. So, yeah. Yeah. So I just, I never really got that, but now I do. <laughs> if you had counter steering as a skill back then, would it have been no problem? Would you have been able to break? Oh, yeah. And make sure oh, were- yeah. I would have. I, even if I couldn't break, I would have I would have uh, made it through that corner without any issue. Yeah. Because again, cause the guy, John, who ta- asked me about it, you know, after it was over, he said, have you ever heard about counter steering and steering? You know, I told him I had heard of it. He said, well, you should just practice it while you're riding. Just even if you're going down a straightaway, just push on the bar on either side and see what the bike does. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and that was a great suggestion. Uh, because I started doing that and then I started doing it in corners and now it's, you know, it's, it's no, a no brainer. There's so many single motorcycle crashes that are from that. There's, there's a, a road not far from where I am right now that um, there's numerous crashes there probably every year. And it appears to always be the same. Someone who goes into a corner panics because of the, the, the corner, maybe they're going too fast, wrong position on it. And they just steer into the corner. And there's the big mistake. As soon as you steer into the corner, the bike stands up and, and yeah. away you go. Well, that's exact. I mean, I, I guilty as charged on, on all counts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel bad, you know, you know, you hear, and, and it's true. I mean, there are motorists who are responsible for motorcycle crashes, you know, cars, but that wasn't the car's fault. I mean, yeah. my accident was squarely on me and uh, to, and I, oh, whenever I, hear the, you know, the thing about, you know, watch out for motorcycles. And I understand that, but I always, to me, I say to myself, yeah, watch out for motorcycles, but it's the, it's the guy behind the handlebars that has the most control over whether you crash or not. 
even, even though people can pull out in front of you, I, I get that all of that. But we have the most control over whether we crash, get hurt, or die or not. You went to the hotel that night, and at that point, you were done riding. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So um, we took the. Um, I took some uh, a, a wrench, and we kind of zip tied it to the uh, bike, so I had somewhat of a, a foot peg to stand on. And we went back in the steamboat and um, kind of disassembled any, you know, the the parts that we needed to off the bike. So uh, we we're trying to decide what we we're going to do. Um, to complete the ride or not. And I had in my back of my mind that whole time that I'm not going to complete this ride. You know, and, and I'm done. I'm, I'm not going to ride anymore. Uh, I, it, it, it scared me. The possibilities you mean is that's what you're, oh, I'm, yeah. Yeah. I could have, I mean, very easily could have been dead. Yeah. And I've, and I've had some episodes before then, after then that, that were close. Uh, but this one, this one was different. And, um, I actually uh, talked, I didn't know what I was going to tell my wife. So like I called her and I found, told her what happened. I said, I'm done. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. Of course, that was a lie. <laughs> that was, that well, it's was not a lie. I mean, you, that's how you feel the time, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, after I told her that and I hung up and we got the bike the next morning, we found a, a, um, shop that would do some welding and we got there first thing in the morning and they were so great. Um, they, uh, welded the, the kickstand and the foot peg back on almost better than it was initially. And it allowed me to, you know, to ride on and complete the ride. And, and once I realized that I can still ride the bike, you know, I, I didn't, number one, I didn't want to let everybody else down. I felt like, you know, I was the one who planned this ride. Um, I had the most information and I didn't want to just let them go on their own. So I just said, okay, well, I'll, I'll at least finish this ride. And then after it, I'm done. But as the ride went on, there was no way I was giving this up. <laughs> there was no, no possible way. Uh, it was just, it was everything that I thought it was going to be and more uh, after the, of course, after the accident. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, as, as the week went on, I was solidly into continuing with adventure riding. Um, so, yeah, we had one more episode on that ride. I don't know if you're familiar with Black Bear Pass in Colorado. Oh, yeah. Um, many, year, many yes. years ago. It's been a long time since yeah, I've been on that. So, this same guy who told me to uh, tell the cop that we, we were just working on the bike convinced us all to take to do Black Bear Pass instead of Ophir. So, Ophir is, the, is on the BDR, but Black Bear is an alternate and it comes down into Telluride. And I didn't know anything about Black Bear and everybody else in the ride didn't know anything about Black Bear. And um, so we get up to the top and it was a fun ride going up, but it's coming down. That's the problem into Telluride. It's um, a couple hundred yards of very steep, very slippery rock. You, you only went one way though. You didn't go up and down, up and back. No, 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 yeah, no. You can only way. go one way. Yeah. yeah. And this, the last section into Telluride, you can only go down. Yeah. You can't come back up. And, oh man, we were all scared. <laughs> we made it, but we were, we were very frightened, you know, and, and, um, I think it was on Bluetooth with one of the guys and it said, you know, you want to get some pictures? He said, heck no, I just want to get off this mountain. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think there's a hydro generating plant up there, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I yeah. think it is. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, but it was beautiful. And the view of Telluride from up there is gorgeous, but I don't think I'd take an adventure bike down Black Bear again. Yeah. And so let, let's go back to this for a second. I just want to look at sort of the stuff that maybe you've identified 
as being a problem in this corner. And I'm, I'm obviously the first one would be the GPS, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's well. I mean, it, you know, the GPS of, uh, in of itself is not a problem. It's it's how you use it and, and whether you allow it to be a distraction. And so, you know, now I've learned that if you need to look at it, you just you glance. You take you know short glances at the screen. And if you need to do much more than that, pull over, stop, and look at look at what you need to find out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so you, you can't just get lost in the GPS. There's, you're moving too fast. Stuff happens fast and you're in trouble. So it's a great tool. You just have to be careful not to get, you know, all um, caught up in, in what you're doing and forgetting that you're trying to ride a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and of course, there's, there's so many distracted driving laws in, in different places now trying to deal with that sort of thing. Unfortunately, I think it's a bit of, a, you know, a epidemic proportions right now with people yeah. messing with, yes. uh, with yeah, mobile very, devices. Very much so. And certainly while we're on a motorcycle, that's not, not the place to be messing with, with a mobile device. And, and what you said earlier, and I thought was, was really to the point with it, because you said, you know, when you go into something like this, sometimes you forget what you're doing because you're so into looking at the device. And for those, for those few, even partial seconds that you spend zooming, you're kind of zoned out. You've given up control of the bike. I mean, think about, you know, like you're watching television. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a child of Saturday morning cartoons and, um, TV, if there's a TV on my, my eyes get get glaze over and I'm locked in and the world, a bomb can go off around me and I don't even notice. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, a a GPS screen is really not that much different than a television screen. And, And it's so easy to get caught up in what's in front of you, uh, that you can forget what you're doing. Uh, and, uh, and get into trouble. What other things did you learn? Um, I have a guardian angel <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and then in all seriousness, I, I shouldn't be here. Something helped me that day. And, uh, it wasn't my skill. That's for sure. Um, where all the gear, you know, you hear I get all the time and it's no joke. I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about the hitting the deer the following year, but, uh, or last year. And that's, uh, but if I didn't have the gear on in that, either of these situations, I wouldn't be talking to you today. So, yeah. So, but ba- so back to that corner though, what about before you got into that corner, things that, that sort of, you know, um, added to what happened before you got into that corner? Um, I don't know. I think we, you know, there was a concern about people behind me. There was, um, um, uh, concentrating on the, um, GPS device. Um, the road condition was good. Um, it wasn't like it was wet or anything like that. Um, I'm thinking more about that brake pedal. Oh yeah. When repairing you it. Yeah. And you knew that you had to reach for it and aren't totally yeah. familiar with it. It's those type of things that, you know, can come back and, and bite you when you don't realize it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it too was when it happened, I, when it bent, I'm like, Oh, well, I got to get going. I don't want to let these guys hold these guys up. And, you know, get them upset that they have to wait for me to fix a brake pedal. And that was all in my brain. It wasn't them. It was just, you know, what I convinced myself. And uh, so I just like, well, I'll get it later. And, um, and I, you know, I didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your equipment, having your equipment prepared and maintained and ready to be used is, is critical. It's important, you know, really important. Did you end up taking any, any courses after this? Did that prompt you uh, to take a course? Yeah, I, um, Jack uh, O'Connor had, he, I think he sold the business now, but he had uh, Pine Barrens Adventure Camp 
And um, so I took a class with him in uh, the State College PA area. And that was real helpful. Um, so, yeah. Well, John, thank you very much. I, I want to thank you for for sharing the story because this kind of stuff is hard to share and admit, you know, that you did something wrong. And, and especially, you know, it's so easy to look at something in hindsight and say, well, that was stupid. This guy did this. It's tough to to admit this stuff and, and talk about it sometimes, but by doing so, it it'll illustrates the point to someone else and lets yeah, us. Yeah, I, I hope it helps. I yeah, hope it helps someone else of things. And yeah. but so, thank you very much for that, and, and thanks for your time for coming on the show and talking about it. Oh, you're welcome. I just I, I don't want to say this has my, my, been my dream to be on your show, but ever since my brother turned me on to it a few years ago, and I haven't missed an episode since. And um, you just do such an amazing job and uh, you do a, such a service for the motorcycling community. I can't thank you enough. Oh, thank you, John. I really appreciate that. You're welcome. That was John Sirabassi from Emmaus Moto Tours from his home in Chicago. We've got some photos from John in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Now we're going to take a short break. i got a couple of things I want to tell you about. When we come back, though, we have a cornering expert to talk about countersteering, and he has a great way for you to practice countersteering and have some fun doing it. Stay with us. Go light, go fast, go far with Giant Loop. Giant Loop believes that lighter and simpler is better and that how we ride shouldn't be dictated by what's strapped on the bike and that riding is just plain more fun when unnecessary weight and bulk are removed. So that's what Giant Loop does. They eliminate elements, focusing on what's needed to serve the product's mission, which means no extra straps or buckles, no everything in the kitchen sink designs. Instead, each product is purpose-built to enhance the riding experience for those that want a modular and customizable packing system that's durable, stable, intuitive, and lightweight. And remember, Giant Loop was founded by a rider, Harold Cecil, who was after building a better luggage system for himself and his friends before it became a company. So that tells you something about the roots of Giant Loop. GiantLoopMoto.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. GiantLoopMoto.com. IMS Products is owned by Scott Wright. Now, Scott is not only a serious adventure rider, he is a former Baja 1000 winner. So that gives you an idea of where the passion behind IMS and their full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs comes from. I want to walk you through some of these series, three series of pegs right now. The ADV series, they're the largest ones. The ADV series foot peg is designed specifically for adventure riding, a larger platform, both wider and longer. It gives you the benefits of that wider contact patch on your boot that reduces stress on your feet, your legs, and your hips, and it gives you a lot of control over the bike. The bike really responds to your inputs, and it's great for a heavy bike in particular. The next one is the Rally Pegs. The IMS Products Rally Pegs are a more aggressive, tall-tooth design, a wider platform than your stock foot peg would be. It uh, better distributes the rider's weight, and it helps with lean angle, and it greatly improves the overall handling and control of the motorcycle. So whether you're a casual racer, a desert racer, or an aggressive adventure motorcycle rider, the IMS Rally Foot Peg will give you maximum performance and grip. Core Enduro. 
Now, the Core Enduro Foot Peg, this is the peg that I have on my bike. I love this peg. It takes your adventure to the next level. You go longer, harder, and faster with this wider base and aggressive uh, tooth design on it. These are a smaller foot peg than the ADV series, but they're very aggressive and they really plant your feet no matter what's around the next corner. So if you're an aggressive rider and you ride tight technical things, this may be the peg for you. So there you have it. The ADV series for fire roads, highways, long distance, sort of wide platforms. The rally series, an aggressive wide foot pegs that'll take your ride to the next level. And then the core enduro pegs for the more technical, aggressive rider right through to racing, I guess. IMS products, they're made in the USA. They're warrantied for life. You can't go wrong. IMSproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. My name is John Delvecchio. I am from Rochester, New York, and I'm a cornering coach. Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks for having me. So how long have you been a corner coach? Well, I began to uh, become a rider coach in 2007, and I decided I wanted to get more involved with rider training as a motorcyclist myself. And for 10 years, I taught the basic rider course here at my local training uh, site. And around 2015, I decided I wanted to maybe branch off into more advanced or what I call next level training. And I transitioned from the basic skills into more of a cornering uh, focus with my curriculum. I wrote a book called Cornering Confidence, have an online course that goes along with that, which is basically the curriculum I use in a variety of methods. And I have this book. This is a good book for anyone, that whether you're, uh, say, an experienced rider, or at least you have a lot of years under your belt or not, to understand the, the physics behind riding. What is it about the teaching of riding or, the, or, or understanding the physics that really excites you about it? Like, why this path for you? Well, I do, I do like to say that I'm really not a scientist. I'm not an engineer. What I am, I'm a high school teacher. And so what I like to do is take some complex information and sort of reduce it into the most uh, essential pieces to communicate it to people. And so the book is really my way of sort of taking the, the, the brainy type of scientific whys and how things work behind riding a motorcycle and putting it into layman's terms for, for the average rider, because that's what I think is really going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. What's a day out for riding for you, John? I like to do sport touring and my friends and I will go down to Pennsylvania. So I'm in New York state and the roads are pretty good here, but we'll take a day ride down to Pennsylvania. Sometimes we'll do overnights. Uh, I commute occasionally. Uh, very nice. And are you camping from your bike? I tried that and uh, I'm more of a, of a motel, hotel, mom and pop type of guy. Uh, my buddies and I, we really like to get into the back country, West Virginia, down by tail of the dragon and these types of places where you have, you know, hole in the wall places where, uh, you really get, get to see the back country. And that's really what I like. I, 
I really love getting out there and just seeing the the parts of the country that you just pass on an interstate. And a lot of these uh, towns we go through, it seems like you're really going back in time because the diner's the same. Mm-hmm. The streets are awkward. Uh, they don't have as many of the refined uh, elements uh, when you talk about the highways and things like that. And it just kind of brings you back to, uh, I guess, a simpler time. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, y- you know, we've uh, what we're about to talk about today, we've, we've just heard a story about a rider that um, went down in a corner, which in hindsight, he feels could have been prevented if he had understood counter-steering at the time, which brings us to you because... This is what you live for is corners and teaching people how to corner properly and efficiently. So in short, what he did is he entered the corner too fast for him, for what he thought he could do. He panicked and he locked up the front brake. The, the front wheel went out and he, he low-sided. It nearly cost him his life. It was very, very wow. uh, fortunate the way it turned out for him. Now, unfortunately, we hear of these type of single vehicle crashes uh, often occurring on a twisty road. And, and if you look at the tracks of some of these, if you've ever come upon one, it, sometimes you'll see that skid mark going straight off the road. And you can't help but think, did this person not understand counter steering? Did they come in, panic, turn into the corner and have the bike stand up, get on the brakes and just panic and slide off? And if you've ever ridden behind or behind a rider, and I know I, I've seen this a number of times, that rocks their upper body to try and set themselves into a turn, I believe that what you're seeing there is a rider that does not fully understand, not on a conscious level, counter-steering, and certainly doesn't understand what it takes to make a motorcycle turn. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, so the number one problem that people have when it comes to curves and crashing is they just can't steer the motorcycle. and the primary control to steer the motorcycle is the handlebars. Now we can use our upper body weight. We can move a little bit inside. We can do other things, but the primary steering mechanism on a motorcycle is that, that handlebars. And they teach you in the course, I think your biggest, your biggest experience in the basic rider courses with the counter steer is your swerve. So you're going in a, in a straight line and they teach you to uh, press down in a way to avoid the object and then come back with the other press and then straighten out. And at the speeds you normally learn in a, in a parking lot, you're sort of in that gray area between will counter steering work as well as just pointing the tire in the direction that you want to go. If people don't consciously practice a skill, especially, you know, a motor skill, then they're not going to have it when they really need it. And what we try to teach them is to press that the inside grip down in a way to initiate that, that lean, you're going into a corner. Now, one of the things that I, that, that led me to do cornering confidence and to teach people these next level skills. That's your course, corning confidence. Yeah, yeah, was that um, was that the the people just they don't know how to steer the motorcycle in a turn, and we love corners. You know, I know the ADV guys; they love their dirt roads, and but they get on a. a I'm sure when they get out on a curvy road, they want to, you know, kind of lean into it as well. And so, oh yeah. yeah, the the new rider or the rider that doesn't even see a lot of corners, their their body just will 
will turn, will counter steer, but it's like if you bring it to the 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 front of your consciousness, that's when you really get to experience the power of what it can do for you. Now, when I hear of a person who made that mistake that you're saying, a couple of things can really happen here beyond just not understanding counter steering. And I can get into a little bit more of that in a second, but we do have the panic that happens because I know you had Keith code on recently mm-hmm. and uh, he, ha- he talks about survival reactions in these types of things and in his book. And that's what I think happens. People just freeze up when they enter that corner too fast, not understanding that if if they just press a little bit more and I'm, I'm kind of getting at the uh, something that I guess bothers me a little bit about what we teach people uh, in the, in the beginner course, we say to them, all right, if you go into a corner too fast, you just got to press more. You just got to press more. It's kind of like press and pray. I think uh, I heard another expert say it one time. And uh, And sorry, when you say press more, what you're talking about is pushing the handlebar forward to, to pushing. Yeah. Pushing the handlebar down on the inside of the turn down and away from you to induce more, more of a counter steer. Mm -hmm. Okay. To help to increase lean so that you make that turn because of the faster speed. And we tell people this in a classroom, we tell these people in a parking lot, but they don't have a chance to make those mental connections between their brain and their arms and their hands and their body to, to, to make all this work. So what I will say is there are other ways of handling this, which I talk more about in cornering confidence. We can do trail braking, we can slow down our speed because uh, speed is a primary factor of our steering. Okay, the slower we're going, the sharper we can turn and so forth. Um, we can also straighten out our line a little bit more. So let's say this person was going into a right-hander. Uh, they, If no one were coming the other way, they could straighten up a little bit. Yes, they might come in oncoming lane, that kind of thing. That wouldn't be good if someone was coming the other way, yet um, you know, you're taking your chances there. Now, w- there's other options, but what I've noticed is Oh, many riders, they think they're leaning the motorcycle really more than they are. You know, they, they lean into a turn and they feel like they can be dragging a knee any second. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can see this a lot if you go to uh, the uh, Tale of the Dragon uh, fo- photographer websites, you'll see people that really have a lot of lean angle left. And while I'm a, I'm a proponent of keeping your motorcycle more vertically upright in a turn, Okay, so I call that my straight principle. We, we do want to lean the bike, but I try to say, well, get inside, kiss the mirror to keep the motorcycle more vertically upright. I prefer that with slowing down than what I'm about to tell you now. And, and that's what the standard training says. Press more and you'll come, hopefully come out on the other side upright and happy. And so I think in this particular instance, while I wasn't there, I would tend to think that this person, although they were going too fast and they were comfortable, they probably did have some uh, ground clearance and decent traction and that kind of thing that they probably could have given it a little bit more press in the direction of the turn to give them greater lean to make that turn other than have that survival reaction. And then of course, Jim, you know, that target fixation, uh, 
I see the outside of the turn and we kind of, we can tend to give up at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've actually seen a video of somebody who unfortunately clipped a bus that was going the other way. And I slow the video down frame by frame and you can see in the last little bit, they actually lean into the bus. It's horrible. It's just horrible. And it was like, it's just that giving up. He was fixated on the bus Mm -hmm. watching it as he made his corner. But, but okay. So like, let's take this, this, um, this example out of the picture then and just talk a little bit about counter steering. Now, the one thing I want to ask you is that you said, you say when you're, when you're talking about counter steering, you talk about pushing down. Why do you say down instead of just pushing forward? Because really that's what we're doing with the bars. We're pushing forward. Well, it's interesting you say that because my mentor, when I taught the MSF classes for 10 years, verbiage, language, the words you use, they're very specific. And you, you could say the sun is shining brightly out there and someone will hear it differently that it's raining. It's just you think you have the words perfectly chosen and someone hears it a little differently. Now, my mentor had explained when I was teaching the swerving maneuver that we're pressing kind of down and away and you are pressing forward. But if, I guess if you're, if you're sitting vertical on the motorcycle and you got your hands on the bars, if you want to lean into a turn, you're going to sort of press that bar down and away the, from you. So I guess the only way I can explain that is that's what I was kind of told to say that would give people a little bit of a better idea what to do. Okay. Maybe not to abruptly push forward and then maybe turn the bars abruptly in a different direction. But uh, so, but, you know, forward down and away. uh, And that's what I think of, you know, if I'm, if I'm already leaning and I want to add more lean angle and counter steer more into the direction of that turn, I would be pressing down and away, you know, from, mm-hmm. from where I'm, from my body access or whatever. But, uh, so I guess it's, it's, uh, semantics at this point, you know, but- and I just wanted to ask because I, I'm sure that somebody's listening and thinking that's not what I've been told. I've been told push forward, but yes, I agree with you. It's, it's pretty much the same thing that we're talking right. about here. Right. So if I, so, so we'll also say to people, and this goes along with your, your listeners, we, we extend, we kind of straighten out that inside arm. So what, if we're going to, let's say, make a left-hand turn, we will press our left grip forward or down in a way it's going to extend our arm in a more straighter. And so we, that's sort of the idea there. Now with counter steering, we, we all have ridden, most of us have, have ridden bicycles as kids and you counter counter steer automatically when you're riding a bicycle. But I think the difference here with the motorcycle is that you're obviously the speeds are, are much greater. There, there's much more weight. There's, there's many different, uh, many things that are different from riding a bicycle, but I think because you haven't actually consciously thought about it and you've got the power of the engine at much greater speeds and you're on the road with other traffic, that's my thought process is where people run into trouble because yes, they know how to counter steer intuitively, but they don't understand it fully. So in other words, they don't think when they get into their, into that corner that they can tighten their corner by counter steering. Does that make sense? It, it makes perfect sense. And one, I've said this before, and I'll probably say it another hundred times. Um, teaching someone how to ride a motorcycle is probably one of the most difficult things to teach somebody how to do, because you're not there, you're you're not sitting with them. 
you can't really see what they're doing to give them the appropriate feedback. Now you can in a parking lot, right? When you see them, where they stop, where if they put the left foot down, foot down first, that kind of thing. But when it comes to the the, the nuances of of a gentle press forward or however you want to talk about the initiating of that turn, it it's a little bit harder to tell if they get it or not. Um, I I can't tell you how many times I have taught a student. I think they get, they're getting it. They're, I'm getting feedback from them that they're totally getting it. And then they do something that just shows me, geez, they didn't get it. Mm. You know, it's, and, and so you have to kind of rebuild those blocks up again. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to add to the, the world of motorcycle training, if you will, skill development in my book is I talk about, uh, oscillations, I call them, or basically line changes in a curve. And you can think about this as if you were to be upright in a riding straight down the road and then a car backs out of a driveway, you're going to want to do a swerve maneuver around the back end of that car to avoid hitting that object. Well, what I like to tell people is that problems in your path don't end when the corner begins. Okay. So we have to be skilled at adjusting or changing our line in a curve while we're leaned over. Now we could do this just to adjust our line. I think you mentioned earlier, someone when it, when um, they, they headed into a bus, the direction of a bus. Well, let's say I'm going into a left-hand turn and I see a big, huge dually pickup uh, mirror you know, door mirror coming towards me and I'm too close to that center line, right? Mm -hmm. I might want to adjust my line just to avoid that or a scenario from happening. Or maybe I don't like the pavement over here. I see a little bit of gravel. I may want to just adjust for better vision around the corner. Now, we also might want to change our line in a curve if there's an if there's an emergency situation clearly like a tar snake or a huge pothole now what i would advise is that to practice these light swerves in a curve uh, when i would teach the coaching tours uh and and do other track day classes and that kind of thing the those methods uh, the students loved practicing these light swerves in a corner. Now we're not talking tight, tight turns here. We're talking sweepers. Mm -hmm. So as you would swerve upright, you can do a very similar thing as you're leaning over, let's say just a few degrees in a sweeping turn, you can just kind of press the bars back and forth a little bit. And what this does, it will gently change your direction. And I would tell people like this individual that contacted you and say, Hey, you know, while you're in a corner, look for shadows on the ground, look for, you know, something that, you know, you can, um, a filled in pothole that you can just gently swerve around because if you practice this skill and you just do these gentle, gentle, uh, swerves in the, in the sweepers, as you're practicing and building that muscle memory, what ends up happening is when the chips are down, you have, you're programmed into doing that autonomously, right? right. So, the, you know, we, we start with the cognitive thing, you know, where 
the cognitive stage of motor learning, I'm telling you now, and I'm telling people in my books, you know, when you're leaned in a curve, try to just do a few light swerves. And then what happens is you practice in, in that associative phase, then you be, become a little bit more experienced and you practice it. And then you become autonomous after that. The, the item presents itself that you want to avoid and you simply, you can just do that light swerve around it. And I think that is a huge thing that's missed in much of the training that I've seen in the books that I've read. Um, and I'll go so far as to say this, Jim, the experienced riders, even this person that might've had just a few years, we are told that if you don't have the corner figured out before you enter it, you're, you're just not an, a skilled rider. That you have to, before you tip in, you got to know the whole thing. And I, I think I've read a, a couple books that just said mid-corner adjustments is an error, okay? I tend to think the opposite. I think we, we, should, we should take advantage of the opportunities we have to change our line in a curve if we need to. Oh, sure. It'd be great if we can prepare and execute that corner from start to finish just as we plan it. But we, you and I both know something's going to be in our way at some point mm -hmm. or there's going to be gravel on the road at some point. And if you haven't rehearsed and practiced this very simple thing, uh, then, you know, you're, you're put yourself, I think, in a little bit more greater risk of being a victim to that kind of situation. That's beautifully said. And, that, and that's exactly the point of, of what I wanted to talk about here. Now, when you're saying you're, you, you get a person to the corner and they make their corrective changes or they're going around something, swerving around something, there's only one way that they can do that. Am, am I correct? Yeah. Well, counter steering. Right. So counter steering is the big one. Now, sometimes you can shift your body a little bit uh, and you can kind of straighten up the bike and you can do things to change your line, which is something that people could do as they practice these line changes. For example, sometimes if I'm leaning too much, I can sort of just kind of get my shoulders up quick and I can straighten the bike up a little more. It helps me straighten that bar out. But, but you're right. Practicing counter steering while leaned is kind of the, um, I'm going to say the silver bullet here. So when you're telling someone to go to and practice their, their counter steering, is that the one method you give them? Do you give them anything to do on the straight sections of the road? Now, so the straight sections of the road, one of the things I learned from my experience is the basic rider courses, they do what they do very well. You know, the traffic management, um, mental strategies, the quick stops, the swerves. And so I don't really talk too much about swerving in a straight line. I figure that that's pretty much covered in the, in the basics where I'm put positioning my curriculum at the, the next level. Okay. But what, what I would suggest people do when they're, when they're practicing is, and, and I talk about this in my curriculum book, online course, live sessions and things is um, to have your arms, what I would call loose and level. Okay. So you're going to have your shoulders and arms loose and your forearm will be level uh, with the ground kind of parallel to the, to the road. And what this allows us to do, and I base I learned this from Keith Code stuff. You know, it just helps us make those very gentle uh, presses of the handlebar. 
in a neutral way so that we don't get that chatter from the front to transfer back to the to the rest of the motorcycle and and upset the the whole scenario. And so the loosen level really helps uh, people isolate when they're going to be pressing in the direction that they want to go. I, I would also say that you just tell someone to go go down a road at 30 miles an hour and just start pressing the handlebars. Mm-hmm. And you, 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 it's undeniable the response to press left, you'll go left to press right. You'll go right. This is just in a straight line within your own lane. Uh, so that, that's what I tell people um, when it comes to the basics. Okay. Palms pressing down and away. And of course uh, we also want to make sure that we're, we're not counter steering abruptly because Again, you know, the, the traction pie, we have the braking, turning and acceleration and then kind of what's left over there. And so if we press suddenly, okay, or we change direction suddenly under the right circumstances, if we don't have enough traction underneath us, we could we could get ourselves into a, to a low side or a tuck of some kind. But I really would stress, get into a corner. We're talking a sweeper here. Because in my book, what I'll say is when you practice oscillations, I call them, it's just kind of like weaving back and forth as you press uh, on each grip side to side. I will encourage people to do that first in a nice wide sweeper. And then as as the uh, skills build and the experience and they know how the motorcycle is going to respond to this, then to start doing it more in a, uh, in, in the more, uh, tighter turns. Right. When you say so wide sweeper, you're talking a sweeper is a corner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a sweeping turn, something that, you know, is pretty, it's the, uh, the radius is, is nice and big and wide and you can, you know, you can really see through the turn quite well. It's almost like you're on a straight road so that you're not going to overcorrect because when you're teaching someone that new skill, one of the things that I I'm concerned of when I teach people, these techniques is that they might go overboard the first time. Mm. And uh, so that's why I say, you know, just gently uh, just do those light swerves back and forth. And uh, I used to hear the guys giggling in their helmets when they did it, when we did the coaching tours uh, with the BMW MOA uh, rallies that I used to go do uh, more training at. And uh, so that, that could help this person. And, they contacted you and that was really the first step in them correcting the problem. You know, if I know that you have heard people say after a mishap of some kind, geez, I just don't know what I could have done differently. I just don't know how I would have prevented it. And there's a sense of despair there. You know, people just have this, gosh, if I can't, if I don't know what I did, how am I supposed to fix it for next time? Yeah. Or denial well, where they, yeah. where they'll say, Oh, it was just the road. There was something on, you know, there, there was something out of my control in other words. Right. Right. I mean, there was even a situation where I have a friend and we were on a, we were on a ride overnight in Maryland and they had just, we call it chip sealing here. Okay. It's, they put oil down and then they throw the little pebbles in it, little mm-hmm. tiny jagged pebbles and they had swept it up. And they had painted the center center line and the edge and the fog lines. And you would think that this road was ready to go. Well, the grader or whoever it was, it was a kind of like a downhill 
out of sight, um, right-hander. And I heard in the Senate, my friend went down and I couldn't believe it because it was pretty good pavement at the time. It was pretty well manicured. And when we went back to see, there was, uh, there was a pile that the grader must've left kind of right at the wrong spot for my buddy. Now, when I went through it, I took a different line. I missed it. Well, he completely hit this thing head on and there was, you know, and so while I give him a break on this and say, he he's right. There really isn't anything you can do if suddenly the patch underneath your motorcycle is a half inch deep of like that little gravel. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I like to teach in my uh, curriculum is what I call that straight principle. Okay. Keeping the motorcycle more vertically upright. And to do that, we kind of just, you know, get our chin inside, kiss the mirror, so to speak. And that will make the motorcycle a little bit more upright. So had a little bit more kiss the mirror been, um, employed by my friend, the motorcycle would have had less lean. And then there might've been a little more time to react. So the more vertically upright the motorcycle is, the more likely you can regain control. The more you have to lean a motorcycle, the less likely you can regain control if there's a slip. And that's why I usually would say pressing more to increase lean angle to make that turn for excessive speed that's why I'm really not a huge fan of it. Although I constantly press more to make more of a lean into a turn. It's just in an emergency situation, you could overdo it. Yeah, that kind of thing. Counter steering isn't the only thing you're going to do in a corner. It's not the only thing that's going to save you in a corner True. or correct in a corner. You have so many other things you could talk about that would, that you should be doing in a corner. Right. I think to summarize right here today, you could you could practice those light swerves in a in a in a light turn, a slighter turn, and and just try to build that muscle memory to avoid those objects if you need to. And so that you understand what counter steering is. And and just very quickly, John, just to recap, describe counter steering. Counter steering is when you press the handlebar grip down and away or forward into the direction that you want to initiate your turn. And then once the turn has been initiated, you'll need to counter steer with the outside palm to hold your line to make that turn right. and to ultimately straighten out. And, when, and which we'll do automatically. But understanding that counter steer to put the bike into the lean is, is key because you're just not going to lean it, not any significant amount without counter steering. And, and just to underscore, I guess the whole discussion here is Talking about it, reading a book, listening to a fantastic podcast is not going to produce the, the counter steer that you would so desire mm -hmm. in a situation. Right. It's going out consciously working on this. And like I said, people are having fun with this in the curves, just kind of doing a light, these light changes. So get out there, you know, make it so that it's, it's an automatic steering counter steering technique because you can't be like oh yeah what did i hear on jim's podcast oh what did you say i gotta press which way do i gotta do it ha it can't be like that it has to be right there on tap mm -hmm. you know ready to go that's great john thanks so much for your time i really appreciate it
Well, thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it. And I love the podcast. I was speaking with John Del Vecchio from Cornering Confidence. His website is streetskills.net. His book is called Cornering Confidence. We've got some photos from John in the show notes, as well as a link to his website, all in the show notes at our website, adventureriderradio.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer Elizabeth Martin and of course to you. Thank you very much for being a part of this by listening to the show. Hey, if you've got any ideas for topics or people that you'd like to hear on Adventure Rider Radio certainly drop by our website and send us a message. Now, it is built on a model of advertising and listener support. We really could use your support. So drop by our website adventureriderradio.com Click on support. Think of what you get from things like a cup of coffee each day and then what you get every week from Adventure Rider Radio and consider becoming a supporter. We'd love it if you'd look at our patron option. That's where we can count on you being there each month for us. Time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. Oh, wait, I should throw in there that we are coming up, I think it's next week, on the 21st, we have Adventure Rider Radio Raw coming out for November. It comes out on the 21st of every month. That's the other show that we do. If you're not familiar with that, again, at the website, adventureriderradio.com. All the information's there. You get it anywhere you find podcasts, just like you do with Adventure Rider Radio. Very popular as well, and uh, I think you'll like it. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Hey, I'm James Barkman, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 